Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Tal Kainan. His new book, God is in the Crowd, is an original and provocative blueprint for Judaism in the 21st century. Presented through the lens of Tal Kainan's unusual personal story, it is a sobering analysis of the threat to Jewish continuity. As the Jewish people has become concentrated in just two hubs, America and Israel, it has lost the subtle code of governance that endowed Judaism with dynamism and relevance in the age of diaspora. This code, as Canaan explains, is derived from Francis Galton's Wisdom of Crowds, in which a group's collective intelligence, memory, and even spirituality can be dramatically different from, and often stronger than, those of any individual member. He argues that without this code, this ancient people and the civilization that it spawned will soon be extinct. Finally, Canaan puts forward a bold and original plan to rewrite the Jewish code, proposing a new model for Judaism and for community in general. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Tal Canaan. Tal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You have written a book, God is in the Crowd, uh, it's a, a blueprint for Judaism in the 21st century, and you got a huge endorsement from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. So I feel like is 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 if you're writing a book like this, you could do a lot worse than get Jonathan Sachs's endorsement on the cover. He, you know, he says it's enthralling, searching, profound, and extraordinarily powerful work on Jewish identity in the 21st century. If you get option for a movie, that's what you want on the poster. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That he was he was very generous with that and and I, and I think you know, we are as he likes to say we we come up with different answers but we're asking the same questions and and the questions in in this case are actually much more important than the answers. Yeah, and I, I'm struck that you I mean you begin the book uh, in your own life story. You tell you you do some biographical stuff with your own life story and you grew up in a home were you were conscious of the fact that you were Jewish, but if you had to identify that, that would have been a harder thing to say what that meant. You know, and you also what struck me is that you you come from not just a child of divorce, but there's also you see marriage breakups in your family history too in Europe, and so you yep. you come sort of with you come to this powerful book about identity having to do hard personal and cultural identity work on your own. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I don't think it's, it's uh, unique. I mean, I, I think we're actually all, you know, if there's, if you can kind of think, think of the, the notion of a pendulum of, of identification with the individual on uh, one end of the spectrum of the swing and community on the other end, you know, my sense, and I think the reaction to the book has, has sort of uh, um, suggested this as well, is that we are at, at the extreme individual end of that of that spectrum. And a lot of us, I think a lot of people around the world are, 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 are now beginning to look for some sort of connection to a bigger um, to a bigger entity, to a community. So yeah, it, yes, I, I definitely feel that myself, uh, but, but I think I'm kind of representative today. Yeah. So many people in the history in world history, right. Didn't have to face some of these existential decisions because they just kind of inherit whatever tradition and the boundaries of that community and that sort of thing. You know, most people don't have to do a lot of hard existential identity work. It's just kind of handed to them when more and more, whether, you're Jewish or, or Christian or in a non-observant context in America, you, you have to figure out a lot of this stuff on your own. Yeah. So I, I think that that comment is, is a, uh, in my view, a very valid, uh, a, 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 almost a universal observation. And, you know, when we're talking about that, that swing, I think that that does apply to everybody. There is something very specific that applies to the Jews today in, in that for the last 2000 years, for almost all of Jewry, uh, you really haven't had the option of assimilation. 
So your identity was something that was imposed on you by, you know, by outside forces. By, by kind of, yeah, you couldn't forget you were a Jew. Everybody would remind you and often in unpleasant ways. Yes, right. So there, there was no opting out um, for, for, for most of Jewry during most of that, that, that period. And what I argue is you know, the, the, the big challenge of the 21st century to, you know, to the Jews is that for the first time, 90 percent of Jewry Right. The, you know, I, would say that they, I don't want to say practically all, but 90 percent of Jewry uh, is living in two patently philo-Semitic jurisdictions, Israel and the United States. That's where the Jews are, 90 percent. And uh, I, I argue and I understand that, that there, you know, some people see this differently, but I argue that both of those are, are inherently friendly jurisdictions to the Jews. They're both homes to the Jews. And we've never had that. Certainly not on on uh, you know, numbers like this. There there were periods of you know of uh, you know, I'd call it limited autonomy under the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there were there were few uh, episodes where a, a tiny fraction of world Jewry um, experienced sort of a, a, a friendly jurisdiction, but nothing like this, and certainly nothing on this scale. And so the challenge is today without. Uh, w- without uh, a host society defining us, we have to define ourselves or or face the prospect of dissolution. And, you know, and I think right now we, we, we can see signs that we are that, that that is that that's becoming quite urgent. That dissolution has has begun. You know, I don't think we're anywhere near a point of no return. And that, that's what the book is about. Um, but that's the challenge. And you kind of strangely found a, a deep connection to Judaism at Exeter, a prep school. This is kind of, this is WASP Central in the Northeast. You go from kind of Florida uh, uh, Jewry to a to WASP Central kind of place in the Northeast. And you, your chaplain, was it Reverend Thompson, who was the kind of yes. Protestant congregational tradition chaplain, cultivated a pretty ecumenically friendly context. And yet in this hospitality, all of a sudden questions about particularity and Judaism went to the forefront of your mind and you throw yourself, you take every, if the class has got Jewish in the title, you're taking it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so I, I suppose there is some irony in the way I, I connected and I do, you know, look, I, I struggle with the tension that I think we, we, we all do to some extent between, you know, universalism and, and particularism. Um, you know, if you look at a society in general, we've we've embraced this notion of a melting pot for describing ourselves in America. It's not the only way, uh, you know, to think of it. And I talk about that sort of uh, Israel Zangwill Horace Callan debate, you know, the first part of the 20th century between America as a, as a melting pot and America as a mosaic. Um, we we you know clearly have embraced embraced a, a kind of a self perception of 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 melting pot. And I think that's easier to pull off, but I'm not sure it's the best way to organize a society long term in that I think we benefit from diversity. Uh, and melting pot is not, I mean, that, 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 that's about creating uniformity. Now, diversity is challenging, right? If you're going to make it work, you need to find love um, despite difference. And, you know, I think we're wired in many ways to, to use difference in, you know, in anything, in, in, in religious persuasion and ethnicity and political views. It, we, we're, we're, we're wired to uh, recognize difference as a as a point of contention, as sort of as a as, as a as a boundary between us and them. So the big challenge is to find love for the for the different. And I think again that that's that, that's something we're facing within Judaism, but I think it's a bigger um, it's a bigger issue today. So Exeter was 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 just the diversity of of, of that environment was a great sort of um, staging ground for 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 all this thinking. Yeah, and you go from Exeter to I'm sure what most graduates at Exeter do. You go to college, eventually wind up uh, go, transferring to the University of Tel Aviv, and you wind up deciding to become an Israeli citizen and serve in the IDF. I mean, just again, normal WASPy sort of route yes. from Exeter. <laughs> not, not everyone does that, but most. You're right. <laughs> and, and and you choose not just like the the defense forces. You're going to go. And you're going to fly jets. I mean, how much of this, were you a Top Gun fan as a kid? I mean, like, you want to fly jets. I mean, were there films, Iron Eagle, Top Gun? I mean, you're thinking Tom Cruise. I mean, what what made you want to fly jets? I, I, that's not really what I wanted. I, you know, I, I kind of stumbled into it. They, you, you, you have very limited uh, discretion as to where you end up you know, when, you're, when, you're, when you're drafted in Israel. So I, I was tested 
for this, assigned to this, and uh, and it ended up working out. It wasn't definitely wasn't a um, you know a specific ambition uh, that I had. I loved it. I, I, you take you take the military SAT and they put you there, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Couldn't you have been right. like, hey, look, I'm a good looking guy. Couldn't I be on the PRN? You know, hey, <laughs> welcome welcome to people for their for their uh, you know for their sort of summer program to fall in love with Israel. I'd be great at that. I look great in a uniform. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wasn't really particular about what, what I would do. I mean, I, I saw that service, you know, I was trying to join a community. I wanted to be part of something. And, and I saw that as sort of the defined, this, this was the, this was the fare that you were asked to pay if you wanted to join. And I wanted to be as, as, as useful as I could and, and as relevant as I could. So I, I, you know, did what I was told and I've been told to do, you know, something different i would have i think embraced it with the same enthusiasm this was me becoming israeli yeah you tell a story in the book that i found so intriguing you're you're training you're finishing your training in the air corps there and you you had a tolstoy book uh anna karina or something you had to and your commanding officers put that down like basically you don't have time for that you're already you know if you're going to make the grade and be a pilot, you don't have time to think of anything but your training. And and you say that that sadly reflects a lot of uh, what you saw in, in the life of the secular Israelis, which you kind of, it's you, you, you have this great topology, right? You say that there's three main people that, that control the sort of center of gravity in Israel. You have the, the, the territorialists, the theocrats and the secularists. And a lot of the folks that you flew with, or the secularist crowd, right? Right, that's right. Yeah, so I mean that that uh, I, I think it's it, it's it, it's a useful framing in in one way for Israeli society, but um, but also you know we, we we could zoom out a little bit further and, and see that as part of a topology for Judaism today in general, and there is a um, I think a general um, underappreciation of the the difference in the realities. Uh, be, between different different Jewish communities, and I, you know, I, I kind of you know, the the juxtaposition I used was was the Athens of American Judaism, um, which you know, in in my experience growing up, and you know, there were there were other Jewish students at Exeter. We, we, I, I guess I, I knew other other Jewish kids growing up. Um, you know, embraced this 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 very open, you know, intellectually probing, um, curious. Sort of liberal arts, uh, uh, you know, conception of, the, of 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 their education, versus the Sparta of of secularist Israeli Jewry, which is really a a warrior class um, that has, you know, traditionally I don't want to say has had no choice because I, I think there is a choice, but I think that the natural, you know, the 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 natural course um, lends itself to this sort of very two dimensional, very Spartan. Um, um, uh, you know, warrior mentality and the education system, I, I think, you know, again, perhaps necessarily guides Israelis there. So, yeah, you, that, you, you put a point on something fascinating in the book that I thought it just blew my mind as I read it. I sat there looking at underlining. I'm like, wow, I never you say that, that Israel is seventh in GDP expenditure for military. So that's high. But then he says, but then you say what you don't factor in is everybody serving. So if you put in the man hours and the cultural shaping and all that, it's it's the most militarized society on the planet. I mean, m- much more than the United States. I mean, it, yes. it, because we, you know, m- military service in the, the United States is it's 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 exotic. I mean, it's just not many people do it, I, and, and many people do it just for a kind of leg up educationally. But but in Israel, you, you this is. If you totaled up the whole contribution, it is Sparta. I mean, it's the most militarized society in modernity. Yeah, yeah, which which has all sorts of implications. Um, you know, some of which I think are, are obvious, and you know, we we recognize them readily. Some of them I think are a lot more a lot more subtle. Um, and and one of those is that is that educational bent toward a you know, just a very narrow, very focused education. I think we're losing a lot though. Jewishly, um, you know, by, by by structuring yourselves that way, and, and you know, beyond that, I mean, it is it is the basis for a very profound difference in in realities between various Jewish communities. By the way, not not just American and Israeli Jews, but within within Israeli Jewry, we're seeing, uh, you know, it is a currently a slim minority, sorry, slim majority that uh, that serves. In uh, you know, that, that 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 performs military service, it's about to become a minority, 
And I think at some point we start facing a real challenge in Israel. This is, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's a Jewish question, but it's first of all an Israeli question about whether we can remain viable. Um, no, no, is this because you have like your, your theocrat, your, your, your ultra Orthodox opt out? I mean, they, they get excluded. I guess you have, and then you talk about some secularists during military service, they're going for American schooling. So you have people kind of, and through a combination of other sort of people opting out here and there, you wind up with with sort of special exemptions, making it kind of into a minority class, or you know, or, or, or going that direction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. By the way, which makes it look a lot more like the United States in that you know we have a a warrior class in this country that increasingly lives a, a, a radically different reality from the rest of the country. I don't think that's sustainable either. That's something we need to we need to address uh, in this country, too. That wasn't the case in Israel. It still isn't the case in Israel, I think, today. Um, but but it, it's heading there um, in that. You know, and but to be clear, it's, it's the same minority that pays the taxes. Right. That the minority that sends its kids to fight the wars is the same minority that pays the taxes in Israel. Uh, and without a, a a vision for what exactly it is that we're doing in Israel, what does Jewish statehood mean? Uh, that that's going to be unsustainable in the long term. So we, we need, and it, it all comes back to this notion of, of let, let's define what Judaism is right now. What what is the ethic that we're we're defending? Yeah, and you talk about this struck me as having parallels to American society and people feeling so disenfranchised from the political system. You, ha- you say that the theocrats, the territorialists, people that are in the settlement kind of culture, and the secularists, the, the people that are sort of secularists and, and, and shaping things, they have such influence in, in government and shaping the direction of society. And yet the fourth Israel, which is the backbone of much of the society, are kind of left, I mean, they're undergirding the society, and yet they don't have the special interests that kind of push and pull on the levers of power. Just like a lot of people in America, like nobody represents me, right? Like, because you have special interest groups that kind of tend to sort of pull the base of the parties. And, 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 and it leads to a kind of alienated sense of, of being, right, for a lot of people, it sounds like, on the ground. Yeah. I mean, I think just to clarify what, what these three visions create and, and the fact that we didn't reconcile them. Each of these is a vision for defining Jewish statehood. What does that mean? So the secularist definition is pretty straightforward. It's a refuge for a, a people that, that has needed refuge and, you know, and hasn't had it for, you know, for 1800 years, structured as a democracy. Not really much more than that. Maybe has some Jewish uh, trappings, you know, the national holidays or Jewish holidays, but that's it. We certainly don't have the government prescribing religiosity to, uh, uh, to the people. You have the theocratic vision, which you know, which started off, and, and these were all sort of codified in 1947 in something called the Status Quo Agreement, um, where the theocrats were a very small community, you know, several thousand people. That's it, um, and with 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 almost no political ambitions. Today, that's a very large and, and and rapidly growing community with real political ambitions to shape the character of Israel into uh, something that they might not call it theocracy. I call it theocracy, I and mean, it's essentially a system where government is prescribing religious observance to um, to the population. And, and and fecundity marks that group. They're a fruitful. I mean, they are the fruitful yes. and multiply people, right? Right. <laughs> that's right. They have so they're they're a little over six point nine children per family. So, you know, to to be clear that that the the and, and by the way, their generations are much shorter. Right. If if you start having children at the age of 19 or 20, uh, you pack in far more generations in, in, in a given kind of slice of time. So that that group is growing at an exponential rate right now. And the last being the, the territorialists, uh, which is a tiny group, actually, I think their their, their relevance is um, is probably temporary. But but these are people who feel that. The land of Israel is a divinely um, uh, uh, granted uh, gift and cannot – there is no human prerogative to, uh, uh, to, to abandon it. So the notion of Palestinian statehood for, you know, for, for this small community is, um, is, is not acceptable and they would give up on I – mean, I think what, what, what defines a territorialist from somebody who actually who, – who just lives in the territories and is, is – these are people who will resist uh, withdrawal from Judea and Samaria, uh, even if the democratically elected government uh, uh, chooses to do it. Now, what's happened is you have three separate – it's as though in many ways as though we're living in three separate countries, three separate states. 
We live in segregated communities. We don't interact with each other. I, I, I didn't interact with, with you know, for example, theocrats um, almost at all in my, you know, in, in, I haven't in all, all my years in Israel. Uh, we have separate education systems, separate curricula. Uh, we have separate rights and obligations as citizens. It, it really is as though we're living in, in, in different countries. That's something we have to reconcile. Instead of reconciling it, though, we have been, you know, using the political system to extract rents from, uh, you know, from from the country. These are parochial rents, you know, for each of the three visions. And and that community, the last community that you mentioned, what I call the fourth Israel, which doesn't really subscribe to any of the three visions, um, has been left to wither um, as as these resources get pulled. You know, if you if you want to do study stipends. Increased study stipends for you know for ultra orthodox uh, uh, yeshiva students in Israel that comes at somebody's expense right there's just a limited number of dollars to go around um, so all of that is you know I, I would categorize that as as a kind of as a festering problem that we will ultimately need to solve the urgent problem is 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 what you began to allude to which is that the secularists have another option you know rather than shouldering shouldering an increasing burden you know again of paying paying the taxes and fighting the wars for a vision that I think, frankly, is just not compelling enough. I don't think the secularist vision really works or it's not it's not adequate. Uh, if you want to live in a liberal democracy, Israel is not your only option. There, there, there are liberal democracies with far lower entry costs. And the United States is, is way, way ahead. It's the top of the list. And these are the people this is the cut of Israeli society that can readily get a visa and come to the United States. And they're here and they're coming in bigger and bigger numbers. And I think they're going back in smaller numbers. And that, 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 that I think is an urgent, uh, um, an an urgent challenge that we should be at at least cognizant of in Israel. I don't think we are. You have this fascinating metaphor in the middle of the book. You talk about, you look at a comet, right? And there's three kind of, uh, the meteor, yeah. the meteor, rather. There's three levels to the meteor, rather, as it's descending. You know, and it, 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 in the you have this hard, dark core in the middle, right, which is which has generally been viewed as the as the sort of ultra observant, steadfast kind of religiously hardlineish kind of Judaism. Then you have this kind of the meteor has this hot white kind of effervescence around that and you look at that as the universal this is the particularly universal right that these are the martin boobers the kind of rosenzweigs that you know the great philosophers yep. the artists the people that you know the i uh, the uh the uh the i'm thinking of um oh the banal author of the banality of evil uh on our rent yeah these are the these great intellectuals that that, that as a minority, influ- disproportionately influence intellectual life all over the Western world, and then you say like the four, it's sort of like the fourth uh, Israel, like that. Then you have the dark uh, sort of smoke trail, the, the dark tail that you don't really see very much. It tapers off quickly, but it's the biggest part of the meteor, like the longest kind of thing. And that's often, you know, this the the, the white heat comes between this the particularists. And the cosmopolitan culture, and every, but most people are neither of those, right? They're, they're they're most people are just kind of living their everyday lives and want to be neither the white hot universalist nor the cold dark particularist core, but but still want an, a, a, a a visible and meaningful part in 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 the descending media. Yeah, so I, I agree, and that that is where that Jewish light uh, is 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 probably the brightest is at that friction point. Uh, you know, between the particularist Jewish world and the universal, um, you know, uh, wider world that, that that's out there to get everybody on the same page and being part of the same phenomenon. Um, we we need to define a lowest common denominator that says th- this this means you're in. This is what Judaism means. This is the border between Judaism and and, and other, you know, and, 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 and other ideas. Um there are you know different degrees or different ways of approaching Judaism for sure, but we do need a definition of what's in and what's out. What exactly are you opting into or opting out of when you when you say Judaism to to unite? You know, again, we we, we, we I think we can parse parse this community in a lot of different ways. The media is you know is just is, is one analogy. Um, but at the end of the day, we need a definition today. That's that that I think is is is, is the you know the most pressing that that that's that's what drives this book. And that's a hard and awkward conversation. And you know, it it, it it's interesting. You tell this story 
in the book of a, a mission you flew that kind of went wrong and you're you're flying and the intelligence said that you know that you're you're that there weren't this wasn't a civilian dense kind of target and through several twists and turns and for people who are reading the book i mean this is this is it goes from sort of intellectual uh, from memoir to intellectual discussion all of a sudden you feel like you're in a spy film or something and i mean you just tell this so well and it, through avoiding surface to air missiles and, and and visibility issues you finally get to your target you have a couple options you, that you have to sort of forego because of conditions and and defense systems and things and you're as you release your payload you realize wait this doesn't look like the target intel we saw in the satellite photos what are all these little structures and you had realized that you just dropped the payload in in, in not a, a civilian uh a relatively low pop but it seemed civilian dense and mm -hmm. and this was uh just horrifying i mean you, you talk about being nauseous in the cockpit uh we're realizing what had just happened in a split second yep Right. So, you know, so I tell that, um, yeah, obviously not, not easy stories to, to tell, but, but I, I do think it's important on, on a number of levels and, and serves exactly the, you know, the, the purpose of this book is first of all, when we talk about those, those different realities, um, you know, American Jewry and Israeli Jewry don't really know each other today and, 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 and have, and, and that goes, in, in both directions, right? This is not just the Americans being ignorant of the Israeli reality. It, it goes in both directions. Um, and, and, and I have, you know, I think the equivalent stories from America that for, for the Israeli readers, hopefully. Yeah. But, but just to understand, you know, Israel gets a lot of attention and, and Israel's defensive policy or defense policy uh, gets, gets, I would say, inordinate, inordinate attention in, you know, in, in the West, even among, you know, particularly among uh, American Jews. And one thing I want to do is to make it clear when you read about these things, um, and of course they happen, they do happen, it is often compelling to take the easy way out and assume um, either intransigence uh, laziness or worse, uh, you know, actually malicious intent, um, you know, when, when you, when you read about civilian casualties from, from this sort of thing. And I, I wanted to make it clear just how complicated it is. I mean, and that was a personal failure of mine and, and it, it, it just mine, right? This was not the system, um, uh, you know, not working. This was my failure. Uh, but I want to make it clear it, that it's not an easy challenge. You know, it's a challenge that if you if you have to do it hundreds of times, as as I did, um, you are going to fail once in a while. It is a very very complicated uh, um, you know uh, environment and a very threatening environment. There's a lot of emotional. You know, there's fear. There's uh, there's anger. There's a lot of angels and a lot of demons coming together in one place when when when, when you're when you're in that sort of uh, um, environment. What, what, another, what, what was Yom Kippur like? The the first Yom Kippur after yeah. that mission. Yeah. So, you know, for me, that was, I think, one of the points where I, I kind of realized I'm in quite deep, right? There is, this is not something I can just peel myself out of. And, you know, Yom Kippur is, is, is uh, you know, is a day where we look back on the last 12 months and, 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 and try to pinpoint what it is we'd like to do differently in the next 12 months. So that, that was, you know, something clearly I thought, but it wasn't just a Yom Kippur thing. It was an everyday thing. That's something that, that has never left me. I mean, it's an everyday thing to this day. And then we're you know, more than 20 years on, um, you know, and I, and I think in that sense, we're, I'm, I'm quite representative. None of us is callous. None of us uh, wants to be, none of us chooses to be in that situation with those dilemmas and to make these really impossible choices um, and, and, and face the prospect of, you know, of, uh, you know, of, of grave mistakes. So it's, it, it, it's not even a Yom Kippur thing. It's really, it's, it's an everyday thing, um, which I'll, I'll never shake. I don't want to shake it. I, 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 I'm, it's important to me that, in fact, it, it, it's as I kind of try to weave in in the book, there is a very uh, Jewish way of approaching this. You mentioned Yom Kippur, there, but, but, but there's more than that. You know, there, there's more than that. There's the notion of communal responsibility. And to be clear, uh, although you know, we, we spent a lot of time, as I described, going through the, the, the personal uh, individual errors that, that, you know, that, that, that lead to these types of, uh, uh, of outcomes, uh, we also spend a lot of time in, in a very, it, it, to, to my knowledge, unique uh, process in 
really scrubbing the the organization as a whole for where are we failing as as an organization and and you're always failing right you're you're never perfect so the, so there's always there's, there's plenty of failures available to focus on and that sort of very uh, uh, transparent very confrontational and and unpleasant um, uh, process of of you know weeding out the issues that you that you need to deal with. That's that's a very Jewish uh, pro- process to me, and and that's an, another reason that I put it forward, and also describe the the you know the debriefing of, of, of one of those missions, uh, you know the sort of Air Force wide debriefing of that, just to understand how how intimately uh, we wrestle with those issues, and this this you know, they're, they don't they're not always just professional issues, they're often moral issues, as, as I, I described in the book. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. One of the other stories that gripped me so much from the book was you you were there when Yitzhak Rabin was killed. I mean, you yeah. you describe this phone conversation you have with your wife. I, I, no, I think you weren't married at the time yet, right? right. Like, right. but but you're 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 you fall in love with this beautiful woman who who you meet as she's coming to Israel and uh and, and for those who are romance novels it's very you set up a nice little romance <laughs> story i mean it's not most of the book but it's i was a little touched you know by the by this vision you described before when you first met her but you that conversation and then everybody thinking that Shimon Perez would be the successor and he wasn't and you even talk about game theory and some things and and it, it, this feeling that watching the country say okay no more risks like no more kind of okay, we're p- taking our chips and 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 how these kinds of accidents of history, I mean, that ch- change can can just change a whole direction of momentum, right? I yeah. mean, and, and what it was like to live through that. I mean, that that, that was. I mean, it, it, this is a pretty dramatic experience living in the midst of this, right? Yeah, I mean that that was a very uh, deflating time you know we you had these twin pillars and i think you're right in describing it as you know it's one of these accidents of history um you, we often i think underestimate how dependent we are on on certain individual um leaders you, you had these twin pillars in itzhak rabin and shimon Peres, who didn't get along with each other to be clear but they they you know and they were political rivals throughout their careers uh but were these twin pillars of hope right and 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 practice a politics t- politics of hope uh and of risk and to be clear that didn't always go well but uh but but were able to sustain it and when we lost one of them i think fear you know fear really took over and 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 came to drive israeli policy I, you know, I, I again, it's, it's it's tough to speak of these things in black and white terms, but you know that 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 is a very still a very prevalent force in Israeli politics and in policymaking is is fear, 
And we're in the Middle East, right? It's very, very easy. There, there, it's, it's not unjustified, um, you know, to, to be in a defensive stance all the time and not take those sorts of risks. I, I, I understand it. I think we need to take risks, but, but I understand those who, uh, who feel differently. And so it's interesting because we've kind of talked a lot about your own biography, but your biography is, is the backdrop for what really the book is, is a proposal for Jewish identity. And it's funny because you say God is in the crowd. You're talking about crowdsourcing and how basically, you, you know, that you point to lots of stuff you've learned in, in, in business studies and social science that basically you get a big crowd that's, you know, has common sense and decently reflective they're going to come up with better solutions than the than the one expert in the crowd, even if that, even if the, the problem facing the crowd is that person's expertise. And you think that stuff sort of says, "Hey, look, what if we sort of crowdsourced the question of Jewish identity a little more? It might be more awkward, and it might be hard, but you can find some." And you list a sort of constellation of values that could help shape that discussion. And that, that if Judaism is going to survive, it's it's going to need to have a broadened base. It's going to have to crowds or open source the identity a little more than it currently is. Yes. Right. So I, I think that that starts with, you know, when, when I put down the problem or the challenge, which is we need to define ourselves. It's the third time in the Jewish story that we've need to, needed to fundamentally redefine what Judaism is. One approach would be to propose a definition, which I don't do. Um, I, I have one, but it's it's just one person. Right. It's not. Uh, um, another is to propose a mechanism or a process whereby we can continually redefine ourselves. And I think luckily we have, you know, we, we have a lot to borrow from. And in that, I, I think in diaspora, Judaism was governed by the crowd, as, as you, you, you just described. It's, it, 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 diaspora was one big experiment in crowd wisdom. And the sort of Francis Galton, guess the weight of the cow experiment, that is what Judaism was doing for 1800 years. And it, it 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 had to either do that or go extinct because remember, there was no leader, there was no pope, there was no central authority in Judaism to adjudicate, you know, do we go left or do we go right? We we had to govern ourselves by some other uh, mechanism, and this was you know, remember this is a constantly evolving and very complex orthodoxy. Judaism yeah. is not simple. And even if the rabbi looks like a decider in context, that that authority is very precarious because it's constantly granted by the community right? it's not as though there's a vatican exactly. that these or, or or a bishopric that these that, that the rabbi even though there's they're doing leading and interpreting that that is that authority it's much more like a, a kind of american protestantism or something right that 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 authority is very uh, loose in that the community needs to continue assent to it so it's it, it is a shared crowdsourcing kind of model even if there's one more educated uh, person who who does the speaking and, and some of the interpreting? That's all still a, a, a more, much more flat process than it looks. Yeah, I, I imagine you wanted to convert to Judaism in 16th century Frankfurt, and you found a rabbi who was willing to convert you. At, at you that went, point, right? It'd be fair to say I'd be a masochist. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you, you you made the ill-informed decision to convert to Judaism at that time in that place, um, but people did. Um, and you went through this rabbi's process and he, uh, uh, you know, g gave you a final exam and it is an exam at the end and decided, okay, you are, you know, f from this point forward, Jewish. That never had to be run by a rabbi in Florence or in Casablanca or anything like that. They might have accepted, you know, your, your rabbi's ruling. They might have rejected it, but they, they didn't even know about it. They probably didn't even know about him. Or, or, or the Frankfurt community. They were, they were, and yet, you know, here we are, this community that has definitely had lots of apostasy and a lot of converting in over the last 2000 years. We have a coherent identity. You know, how is it that that the fact that, you know, you have one community that 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 is, um, you know, completely ignorant of the changes certainly doesn't have a role in shaping the changes in, in another Jewish community. Um, how is it that this whole enterprise doesn't fall apart? Right. How, how is it that there's still a, a coherent identity called Jewish? So to me, that that that's suggests very strongly that there had to be some sort of governance structure in place, even if it wasn't put in place intentionally. And that, that's what I borrow from crowd wisdom, which I also apply to the prescription. I mean, I think it's it's a key to how we move forward as well. We don't have to go back to diaspora to, uh, you know, to, to do we can stay right where we are. Um, but that is a key element of how we uh, 
how we move forward in my prescription. And, and you're pretty clear that that based on statistics about like if like intermarriage happens so much in America, right? And, and basically, when you intermarry, odds are that the grandparents are, or the grandchildren will not be Jewish. Yeah, more more than odds are, it's almost it's almost always the case that the, that the grandchildren do not do not identify as, as Jewish, and so th- this is when, when we said at the, at the beginning of our conversation um, that we can already see the manifestations of of, of you know of, of this challenge of needing to define ourselves in America. That's exactly what I mean. Is uh, you know to to be clear, I on an individual level, I, I have no issue with intermarriage. You know, it's happened a lot in my own family. Uh, love my non-Jewish nieces and nephews. They're fantastic. There's no, you know, it, on an individual level, it, it's it's almost meaningless. Uh, Some of your best friends are not Jewish. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, some of my closest family. However, let's understand that on a communal level, there's no Judaism without Jews. And if 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 we continue going at the that's rate a radical that, thought, by the way. Hey, everybody, let me. Uh, here you go. Here's Charlie. He's going to give you a radical thought experiment here. My radical Ted. Talk, you can't have Judaism without Jews, everybody. Just let it sink in for a minute. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And if you know, if we sustain the current rates of outmarriage from Judaism, then my grandchildren's generation is the last generation of Jews. We will not have in in this country. And and the fact that again, between Israel and the United States, we're talking about ninety percent of world Jewry, and it's trending toward the hundred, not toward the eighty. Right? We are concentrating in these two geographies more and more. Uh, at some point, that means the end of this civilization. And and, and that's again, that's something we're. So you, I, I don't know if you remember, the first section of the book is called Should There Be Jews, which is a sincere, yeah. right? It's a sincere question. And let's, yeah, let's, and, let's and, and, and in the epilogue, you also pose it like, hey, here's my solutions and here's some comeback. I, I like that, you know, I've always learned that, you know, my greatest teachers in, in undergraduate and graduate school said that, you know, the best arguers anticipate objections. And so your conclusion, you anticipate the objections that people will raise. And that's one of them, right? That who, oh, oh well, you know, we, we don't have... Um, well, you look at the old Old Testament, right? The Hebrew Bible. You don't have Jebusites. You don't have, uh, you know, Syrophoenicians, at least by that name anywhere. So, well, okay, gone by the wayside of history. Yeah, yeah. And look, and a lot of people, and I, I accept this. I don't agree with the with their answer, but I certainly accept it's a it's a valid answer. A lot of Jewish people that I talk to uh, answer in the negative, right? Yeah, you know, we don't need Jews in the world. That's not something that's important. We're not advocating for a, obviously for, for, for a violent extermination, but if this people just peters out by natural causes, as, as we're seeing happen right now, that's, that's not a, you know, that there's no loss here. I disagree with that, but I, you know, I, I understand that point of view and it's, it's important that we acknowledge it. I would even say if somebody turns away from uh, his or her Judaism um, with an understanding of what he or she is 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 leaving of the legacy that 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 person is choosing not to uh, perpetuate, that's actually fine. I, I have no issue with that. I, I think w- what we should avoid, what is a tragedy, is what I was probably going to do with my life, and you know what my brothers did, which yeah, is and a, you you tell the story in the book in a powerful way. Like your brother's got a a gentile girlfriend. Things are getting serious, and. You're like, you guys are hanging out at home in Florida and he brings up the idea that, you know, maybe we'll get engaged or something. Your dad goes out and swims some laps furiously and a couple weeks later takes you guys to an Italian restaurant and explains all the dangers of intermarriage. And you got, but there was no, there was a what without a why. Like he yeah. he couldn't explain why not intermarry. He just, well, you know, we're Jews and we have you go back to Europe and the Holocaust. And, and, and you're, you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not a compelling why for the what. I mean, that's and, and, and that I, you tell that story so well. And I'm sitting there reading thinking, well, he's telling the story because this is most Jewish American experience. Right. I mean, there's so many people that that have probably heard that same lecture and been as mystified by it as you guys were. Yeah. And and I think the the result, and we're probably going to hear fewer and fewer of those lectures because if you look at the subsequent marriages, you know, in, in my family, my father was completely reconciled with them at that point. We didn't have that discussion again. That was that was the first time, and then you know from then on, it it just was a non-issue. And I think for him, you know, he he could have gone two ways from there. One was to you know a, a deep dive and exploring. Okay, what is the value actually? I I really need to answer that. I can't be lecturing my 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 sons on this without without a real answer myself. And the other was to say, you know what? All right, maybe they're right. I, I, if I don't know the answer to this, then why am I lecturing them? They should do what they want. If they find love, you know, grab it. And that's that. That's the way he went. And that's the way most of us are going. 
And again, I, I don't think it's illegitimate at all. It's, you know, it's completely fine. The universalist in me even embraces that notion. Um, but again, we, we need to understand that the, the cost of a critical mass of us embracing that notion as, uh, as fine is the end of Judaism. That is the cost of that. Um, so w- we need to decide if this is if this is an ideal, an ethic, a civilization. I, I, I hesitate to use the word religion, but but it, it, it's it's in there somewhere. Um, if if this is a a, a a notion worth preserving, why do you again. hesitate to use the word religion? Well, so I think part part of my issue with that, and and this is specifically in the United States. In Israel, I actually don't don't have as as, as big an issue with that. Um, is that our notion of Judaism in the United States is, and like everything, we like we like to um, segment our life into categories. It, it helps us reason through things, and that's that's fine. I mean, there's nothing, but there's a cause to it sometimes. When we put Judaism under religion in a country with a a, a Christian genesis, right? That this 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 country is a you know is, is a you know, at least not maybe not constitutionally, but certainly culturally is is, is Christian, um, and Judaism becomes a category of religion as as it's looked at from the from, from the standpoint of Christianity. You know, like the fact that we use the word faith pretty much interchangeably with religion in this country. Um, th- that that's a, a good example of how this doesn't really work out for for Judaism. Faith is not a central tenet of of, of Judaism as it is in in Christianity. Um, in fact, I've talked to a lot of young Jews and asked them that question. You know, why be Jewish or or should there be Jews? And often people answer, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not Jew. People who are born to two Jewish parents answer, I'm not Jewish. I mean, my parents are Jewish, but I, I don't believe in God. So it's not really a relevant question for me. Say, so, hold on a second. That's not, that, 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 that was never a threshold requirement, never um, in, uh, in Judaism. In fact, I think some, some of the greatest Jewish scholars, I think that Maimonides himself might not have believed in God, or at least not in the God of Scripture, as was, you know, he's just described in, in, uh, in, in Scripture. So it's not exactly the same enterprise. You know, look at me, you know, somebody who's never been uh, religiously observant in his life, but obviously, obviously feels very, very uh, passionately connected to this, to this people. It's, it's not exactly the religion uh, that, 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 that connects me here. You know, if you, even if you look at the, the historic practice of Judaism, what we've done in the United States is, 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 is taken worship and made it the center of practical Jewish observance. That's an anomaly, actually, in Jewish history. I mean, worship was always part of it, but the idea of coming together in, on Yom Kippur in a synagogue and listening to a rabbi, you know, uh, 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 you know, deliver a sermon and, and, and reading from a book, that, was, th- that exercise, which is very Christian, was only a, a small part of Jewish life in most of diaspora. No, and most- that's also, like, it's interesting, in the Middle Ages, Christians were so non-observant that around the time of Martin Luther, the Pope had to mandate that Christians attend Mass and take communion at least once a year. So, I mean, that, that kind of nominalism isn't unique to Judaism. I mean, that, that you know, this was all over at least medieval Europe. I mean, people were—I think we had this, this idea that everybody's always been observant. I mean, the highest church attendance in the United States was the, was the late 1960s. I mean, at the 18th century, you know, early 19th century, not many people that many people were going to church. Right. <laughs> No, so Scott, that the nominalism you describe is only part of the point, though, be- because there was a very rich life of Jewish observance, but the exercise was not primarily what it is today, which is worship in a cathedral-like structure that we call a synagogue. You know, the, the, there are two translations for uh, uh, for, for synagogue. One, one one loosely translates into house of worship, worship. Bet Mikdash, and the other to house of study, Bet Mikdash. Right. The shul, that kind of. The shul, exactly. Yeah. Shul is a school. And the, the, the far more frequent and, and, and constant exercise of Judaism was two people, you and me, sitting across uh, a, a table from each other with a page of uh, a Talmudic page, right, of, 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 of Gemara, and debating an ethical question. And refining it—that was the exercise. By the way, and if one of us was really good at this, we'd be elevated to a higher stage where we would debate. And if we got up to a high, high enough level, we got to record our thoughts, whether they were consensus or dissenting views. Both got recorded on every and and changed many, many, many times over many generations. That is the primary exercise. Now, is that religion? Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure it, it fits that neatly into in, into that category. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that's that's interesting. Although I wonder if you have a rich culture, right, that of of, of observant kind of things that are community wide. It seems like theological belief can be a little uh, more like you don't have to have strong belief tenets to belong. Or if you have a more, it seems like if you have a more permissive culture, that 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 theology might become a way to hold people together amidst a lot yes. of diversity, right? Like this, this is like evangelical Protestantism in America, right? People have there's there's a lot in common theologically around the inerrancy of the Bible or the return of Jesus, and yet the churches worship completely differently. They have different versions of the Bible, all this stuff. But you're saying, hey, we could have permeable practice and permeable permeable belief. Crowdsource and still actually maintain some sense of a normative, identifiable community. Yes. So, and, and there's there's a real compatibility there. And this goes back to: can we sustain a mosaic um, versus a melting pot model? Where meaning love love each other for our differences, right? And that 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 again, which is a challenge, but. If you take God and faith as as part of this, you know, part of the challenge is part of the, the reason the book is called God is in the crowd is, you know, here's a model that that is actually compatible, even though, you know, there, there's there's a contradictory notion here. But if you if 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 you and I started a factory that makes circles, that's what we do. And, you know, anybody, any customer can come in and order a circle of any size uh, he or she wants it. All they have to do is give us a radius. That That's how we define our circles. I could say, okay, so in order to manufacture, we, we need, we've got that radius. All we need is a point now to draw the radius around. And I don't care if the point is on the floor, on the ceiling, on the wall, in space. It doesn't matter to me. We're going to get the same circle. But you have a much more purist point of view. And you said, no, the, the, that point has to be right in the middle of this north-facing wall. Otherwise, it's not a kosher circle. So th this is how we have to do it. I can actually go with that. That's fine because it doesn't matter to me where the point is. I need a point for sure. But it, I can I can yield to you as to where that point is placed, and as long as I can recognize that it's fine, doesn't matter to me, and you can accept that I think you're crazy putting that point in. in uh, but I'm going to go with it because it doesn't hurt me. It's fine, and we can. And now we have something to route. We can actually draw a circle around it. Then, then we're in good shape. And and this is very much I think. Look, I I I, I don't use the analogy in the book, but I've increasingly been you know. It, it, it's like money to me, right? Money at the end of the day is an invention. It's a fiction. It's not a real thing. It's a, it's something that that if you stop believing in it, if enough of us stop believing in it, it stops existing. Yeah, when you, you tell that? people this about Bitcoin, people think you're crazy. But then the people, right. no, it's the same thing. This this green stuff only works because we we could switch the value if we wanted exactly. to. Exactly, exactly. So now you and I could have very different conceptions of what endows a dollar bill with the value of $1. You could believe it's because it says in God we trust on the back and it's uh you know it's 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 on this uh, beautiful paper and there's some there's some higher level and there's some some machinations going on in government that that endows it with that value. And I could say, you know, look, I I, I think I understand it, it's 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 got value as long as we believe it. Um and and that's it, but we're both using it in the same way. And we're doing wonderful things with it, right? Where we 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 we've built societies with 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 money as a, um, you know, as 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 a fuel. Um, so it, it's it's been a wonderful force in history, even though it is a fiction. And it's okay. We can be. We're, we're still compatible. We're still using it in the same way. If I think its value is derived, you know, it, uh, you know, in, in in this way, and you think it's derived in that way, it's still the same. So th that I think is a good a, a good way of looking at religion. Does it work in Christianity and Islam as well as it works in Judaism? Maybe not. You know, I think, you know, just faith is so much more pronounced in, in, in those religions. So I, I don't know. It's an interesting experiment to go go down there and see. But um, in Judaism, I think it works actually very neatly. And, you know, you it's interesting. Sociologists talk about centered and bonded sets, right? Like a centered set are Eagles fans, right? So if you're an Eagles fan, you might go to every game and tailgate, or you might only watch during the playoffs, but nobody would say, you know, everybody can call themselves an Eagles fan. Now, a bonded set is the Eagles team. You know, if you're on the team, you get the pink slip, you know, at camp and everything, you know, yeah, it, 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 there's a, a uniform, a paycheck. And you're saying that, that a form of Judaism that might, probably is more, is a centered set where, 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 where much more defined by this conversation, a loose set of values, no matter what our proximity to them is versus a bonded set, which is okay. You're, you're 
is this halakhically okay? Are you, or did you check this, this, this? You think that the centered is a much more sustainable model if there's going to be a flourishing community in the future. I mean, it's an interesting framing. I, I, yeah, I wonder if something in between those is a very large bonded set, um, you know, where you have look different levels of adherence. But I, I do think it is it, it's important that there be a definitive boundary between Eagles fan or not Eagles fan that no individual person gets to adjudicate. You know, if I come in and say, you know what, I've been following the Eagles for two, two, three seasons now, I kind of think I'm a fan. And, you know, you say, well, hang on a second. I saw you with a Patriots uh, T-shirt in my book. You're not an Eagles fan. And it would be the Cowboys T-shirt that would do it. I mean, a <laughs> okay. Patriots a forgivable sin. But it'd be like it's like if it's like if you worship Jesus, the Messiah, you're kind of out. If you put a Cowboys shirt on, there's no repentance from there. <laughs> so, right. So if if we could define and this is a bonded notion, right? If we could if we could define objective criteria for in and out, um, even if they're very wide, and I think they should be wide. I mean, in, in that sense, it is, you know, it, it is centered, but but um, but objective criteria that that can't be challenged. I mean, you could say, listen, all right, you're a fan because you meet the criteria, but, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to go to games with you because I'm not in you. You wore that Cowboys T-shirt. You're, you're, you're not kosher in my book. That's OK. That's OK. As, you know, any individual can say anything they want, but you've got no teeth, right? You can't enforce, uh, you know, non-fan status on me in, in any way. That, that, so it, I, I do think we need a clear line of what's in, what's out, not to be adjudicated by two men in Israel, which, which is what we have today. So you have three daughters. Yeah. And they're, they are aging as, as healthy daughters do. What is your speech what's the equivalent of the speech you got at the italian restaurant i mean how do you how how do you how do you i mean do they what you know what would your speech about why marrying in the community is is really existentially important so you know first of all we we don't really have that i mean we we talk about these things pretty explicitly and you know and and with with some regularity and they they had to weather me writing this book as well so they've they've heard they've, they've heard this far more than they that they'd want to so this the, the, first of all it wouldn't be a new question so so um, if you were if you were to get to the point where your daughters were in the situation you were you would say hey i probably, as a jewish parent i probably didn't do what i think a jewish parent should do if this is a, such an earth shocking conversation like Yes, exactly. So that, that that's number one. And number two, look, they, you know, we're, I think back to Rabbi Sachs, this is, we have been structured so much more around questions than around answers. Uh, that, that means that to have any integrity, I have to be willing to accept, my wife and I have to be willing to accept our, our children's choices, and they understand it. That, that said, if if they chose to marry out, they'd be doing it with consciousness of, of you know of what they're doing. They will avoid the pros and cons, and we'll trust them to you know to have done that in, in a way that's right for them. Um, and uh, to be clear, as an individual, I would not be disappointed. I mean, I'd far rather have my my daughter find love in life uh, than to lead a life that somebody else is going to call an adequately Jewish life. Um, you know, th- that said, I, I, I think, you know, and I, I don't write about this enough. It's something that I wish I'd, I'd spent a little bit more time on. I actually think um, outmarriage or intermarriage can become a key tool in resuscitating the quality of Judaism through conversion. And you know, right now we make it very difficult for people to convert to Judaism. And in many ways, I understand why, because it's just unclear what we're saying that you're converting. What, what are you converting into exactly? What is Judaism? What are you embracing? What are you choosing to embrace? It's the same question as what are you choosing to step away from if you if you if you leave the, the community? Um, but I, I've come to look at conversion actually as a as a key tool. And this, you know, I think a lot of people would, would consider sort of heretical. I, I understand it. But the analogy I've been I've been using lately is. <clears throat> If you think of conversion to Americanism, uh, right? So if, if you're born in the United States or to a Jewish parent, you're American um, by definition. You don't have to know anything about America. You don't have to commit to anything. Um, but if you're not and you want to become American, you need to make a pretty big commitment. First, you need to live among us for a number of years before you're even eligible. You need to pass a knowledge test. You need to study uh, to pass that, that knowledge test. You need to take an oath of allegiance. That is a condition of gaining citizenship. So because there and often bond, those people are much more passionate citizens than people that are born in, in okay. naturally. Yeah. Right. So look, I, I mean, is it a huge stretch stretch, Scott, to say that because there's a bar 
for immigration to this country. And there's no bar for being born in this country of knowledge and of commitment that the average immigrant American is a better American than the average born American. On average, obviously there are examples all the good, but is that such a, a stretch? I don't think it is. I think that's actually, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm willing to embrace that notion uh, categorically. Why can that not apply to Judaism? If one of the issues that we're facing today is rampant ignorance of the legacy that we have inherited um, as Jews and no real commitment, we're not asked to make any sort of commitment to what this is. There's no skin in the game uh, you know, in, 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 in being Jewish. Wouldn't it be great if a higher percentage of us actually had some knowledge and some commitment? And I, I don't think conversion is the only way to do that, but it's one really, I think, really key way. And for people who've, who've become passionate, and I, you know, I know a lot of uh, uh, non-Jews who have become passionate enough about Judaism to, to convert, uh, not necessarily for a marriage or for anything like that, but this is something that they're really passionate about, and they come in very knowledgeable and very committed I think that actually raises the the, the, the value of this, you know, of, of this entire enterprise. Tal, you need to spend some time with evangelical Protestants that could give you the whole blueprint for the missionary dating strategy, which is <laughs> which is very effective. Uh, but, well, it, Tal, it sounds like that universal particular tension that you describe it runs deep in you, and and I think that it's not a unique struggle. Even again, as we've talked about outside of. Uh, Judaism as people in a pluralistic society figure out who they are. So I would say, you know, this book, God is in the Crowd, is great reading, not just for people thinking about Jewish identity, but people thinking about identity in the modern world, which is something everybody's got to grab with. It's a great book, and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Thank you, Scott. This is great. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, Please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Tao for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, God is in the Crowd. You will not regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.